Hello, and welcome to episode 126 of the Cognicast, a podcast by Cognitech Inc. about software and the people who create it. This week's host, Stuart Sierra, talks with Dan McKinley, but we do have a few announcements before we get started. There's going to be a closure bridge on June 16th and 17th in Washington, D.C. Now, that's, that's just a few days from when I'm recording this. So if you aren't familiar, Closure Bridge is dedicated to increasing diversity within the programming community by offering free beginner-friendly closure programming workshops to people from underrepresented groups. And as I say, this is just in a few days. So if you're interested, have a look at closurebridge.org events. In other news, the Euroclosure regular rate ends on this coming Monday, June 19th. So if you want to take advantage of the 50 euro discount, head on over to euroclosure.org. You'll also find the conference schedule newly posted there as well. If you have a closure-related event you'd like us to mention, please drop us a line at podcast.cognitech.com. Well, that's about it. So on to Stuart and Dan McKinley and episode 126 of the Cognicast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Cognicast. I'm Stuart Sierra. Today is Friday, May 26th, 2017, and we have Dan McKinley here with us. Welcome to the show, Dan. Hey, thanks for having me. You're, you're welcome. Glad to have you here. Uh, so we'll have a question for you in a moment, but uh, if you would start just by introducing yourself, uh, yourself to the listeners, who you are, what you do. Sure. Uh, so I... I'm a general purpose web programming guy, I guess. <laughs> um, I, um, I most recently had a startup with two friends of mine from Stripe, Coda Hale and Mark Hedlund. Uh, it was called Skyliner. We very recently sold out to MailChimp, so I will be starting at MailChimp in at the end of July. Between now and then, I'm fun employed. Prior to that, like I mentioned, I worked at Stripe for a little bit. Uh, I had another startup with some Etsy folks before that. Before that, I worked for Etsy for seven years. And before that, I was in the financial industry back in New York for a few years until I freaked out and stopped doing that. <laughs> yes, can't blame you there. Um, well, I definitely want to uh, ask you about Skyliner. Uh, we'll get to that in a minute. But as you know, we like to start off each show by asking all of our guests the same question. And that is to relate some experience of art that you found meaningful. Could be anything at all. Sure. So I guess I'm going to take the opportunity to plug my wife's my wife's photography. My of wife is Elizabeth Weinberg. She's a commercial and editorial photographer. Uh, she's much more successful in her field than I am in mine. She, I don't know, she was on, she, uh, the, the New York Times style section is her photo more weeks than it isn't wow, lately. Cool. Uh, and so one photo of hers in particular is one that we have hanging on our wall, which is a picture of my friend Dave Page uh, floating in the ocean. And it is just his head against the sky. Uh, and I'm, I'm going to fail to describe it adequately, but what I will say about it is that it captures a feeling of being lost and forlorn that I often feel in doing engineering of all kinds. <laughs> I, will, I will send it to you and you can put it in the show notes. I Sounds good. Yeah, we'll definitely uh, include that. I, I like the image and, and not to diminish your wife's work in any way, but from the description you just gave, it sounds like there should be a tagline under that photo about cloud computing somehow. Just one, yeah. <laughs> one person alone staring up at the clouds floating in a vast ocean of uh, yeah. data. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> yes. All right. That, that'll be the, uh, the uh, advertising poster for your next startup. <laughs> I use it in talks all the time. Okay, so. good. good. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I think uh, I do want to talk about Skyliner, but to sort of go in chronological order here for a bit, maybe. I'm quite curious about your time at Etsy, because it seems like from glancing through your 
blog posts and presentations that you uh, did a lot of cool stuff there. Yeah, so I can actually relate the experience to Lisp if you would like. Oh, fantastic! Uh, Even better. So, so as, like as I mentioned, like I started my career like in the financial industry, and like the my experience of that was very, uh, you know, working hundred hour weeks in a very hot office uh, when you would we were building a product that nobody cared about. I mean, people cared about the data that was in it, but definitely nobody cared about the experience of using it. Right. Um, when I when I would talk to users. It would, it would generally be in the context of like a salesperson would walk over to me with their eyes the size of dinner plates and say like, you got to talk to this guy. And like I'd pick up the phone and the user would scream at me for 20 minutes. And so anyway, like oh I, I, was getting, <laughs> I was getting tired of, I was getting tired of this. And I can so see why. I was, and I was also like in a vulnerable place, I guess. So like I also incidentally picked up a book at the time called Practical Common Lisp. Ah, uh, Yes. Uh, and it had, it had a weird effect on me where I just, uh, after that, I started coming into work and reading job boards for like, you know, programming languages that I'd rather work in. Yeah. I was, this is, this is off brand for me, I guess, because <laughs> like, I've, I've made, I put, I made a lot of noise on the internet about not prioritizing your life choices based on programming languages or what have you. But like, I was much young, I should preface this by saying, I was much younger at the time, and that mm -hmm. was not part of my decision process yet. Sure. Uh, so yeah, I came into work, and I like I, I was reading the Python job board one day, and I and I saw an ad for a company called Etsy in Brooklyn, um, and I said, "Huh, that name sounds familiar. Where have I heard that?" And so I went over to my Gmail and I searched it, and I said, "Oh, I've heard of Etsy because all the coolest people I know have been sending me links to it for the okay, last." Okay, cool. That's a <laughs> yeah, good sign. So, yeah. Right, and so I like. I wrote them a really weird email and got myself an interview. I show up for the interview wearing my Contcell t-shirt. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and, Excellent. Uh, and, um, you know, I walk in, there's, there's marijuana smoke and band of horses like billowing out of the CEO's <laughs> office. And this guy, this guy shows up and he says, shows up late and says, Hey, I'm here. I've got to interview you, but I'm really hung over. Let's go outside. I need a smoke. <laughs> and so my, my interview at Etsy consisted of, consisted of, you know, that guy noticing that I was wearing a Contcell t-shirt. I said, yeah, I just read this book called Practical Common Lisp. And it really like, it blew my mind, man. Uh -huh, <laughs> he, was, yeah. he was like, he was like, oh yeah, that book is great. And with my entire interview is just talking about Practical Common Lisp. And so, you know, Years pass. Nearly everyone who was there when I interviewed got fired, but not me. Okay. Uh, and and Peter Seibel, the author of that book, interviews at Etsy one day. I'm going to say in like 2010 or 2011 or something uh -huh. like that. And I like told him this story, and he just like looked at me with like the the most <laughs> appalled look appalled look <laughs> on his face, and he says, "I." I am sorry. Like that sounds like a horrible series of decisions and you never should have done that. <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, so yeah, I wound up working at Etsy indirectly via Lisp, I guess. So that's okay. like, and that, that set off a chain of events that got me on this podcast today, I suppose. Cool. Um, I don't, I have a lot of other weird stories from that period, but like that is the one that I think relates to your audience the most. Well, that's great. I'm sure plenty of people listening uh, have read Peter Seibel's Practical Common Lisp. That was how I got into uh, Lisp many years ago. And uh, it's a great book. It really, it was really one of the more fun, inspiring, but very practical programming books that I recall reading. Yeah. So I've like most of my, uh, most of my day job at the time was like Visual Basic or something. And so mm -hmm. I like, I had a I, I needed some more, some room to breathe, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. And Common List definitely gives you plenty of room to do just about anything. Right, right, right. Yeah. Well, cool. I mean, that's, uh, th that's a great story. That essentially gives you the feel of what Etsy was like early on. Early on, it, yeah. It definitely, like we moved on to other things. You know, my first, the first year was like, what the hell is happening? The first, the, the two years after that, were okay everyone's been fired and we have to keep the site turned on wow uh, okay. and so it's just a mad scramble to stay in front of traffic eventually we got in front of that and then the rest of my time there was working with uh uh you know vaguely data related things uh so search uh recommendations analytics 
uh, how do we how do we go about the project of trying to build projects build products right. that make an impact? Yeah, and you wrote several uh, articles and gave some some presentations about that, which I think were uh, really really interesting and informative. Uh, I think the best, probably the biggest one, was the push train. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. So the um, well, the, that's the most recent one. Okay. I, I've done the other one uh, a lot more often, but the push train is one that's freshest for me right now. And so that that is kind of detailing the the process of morphing Etsy from a a company that deployed once every two months and it was a giant disaster mm-hmm. into into deploying twenty to sixty times a day as a matter of routine. Yeah. Um, and so the experience of having done that was most of what my contribution to Skyliner was the rest, the other half of it was all of Coda's, um, all of Coda's opinions about how you deploy stuff onto the cloud. My contribution was more of the social side of like, how do you organize a team of people to deploy a lot frequently? And I mean, obviously we, we wound up being acquired. So like, I don't, <laughs> I don't get but I have lots of opinions about this still. What really struck me about that article and and some others you did about that time when you were uh, at Etsy was the the fact that this process, which we now call continuous deployment, I guess, while there were technical challenges to it, one of the biggest challenges ended up being just organizing people, coordinating actions of a bunch of developers who are all working on the same application and all trying to deploy. Right. So I think like if you look at a lot of the other talks that Etsy folk have done about continuous delivery, which like you totally should, they're all very good. I think like a lot of them are describing the technical challenges involved in mm-hmm. um, in, in shipping those things. So like I think like Rasmus Lerdorf has a talk that's just explaining how you do atomic PHP deploys. Mm-hmm. Just like you ha- those are details that you have to figure out. But right. the insight that I gained after leaving and then seeing other companies trying to like do things out of Etsy's playbook was that, oh, okay, those things are those kinds of concerns are all they're obviously extremely immediate when you're trying to get the work done in order to make deploying sixty times a day technically possible. Right. But they're they're necessary but not sufficient things. Yeah. Uh, the real interesting slash tricky part was getting all of the people to work together and to getting all of the people to work together with our while prioritizing our primary goals, which were to like change a lot of code and to to not break everything as we did it. Uh, And so I think like all of those things were the difficult things. Right. I mean, or those are the things that are less easily explained to others. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And, and you can't just sort of give a set of, steps or a piece of technology and just say, here, this is how you do it. It, This is how it works. Yeah. I would say like after leaving, like I, I've, I'm a bigger fan. I'm a, I'm a uh, bigger believer in Conway's law than I was at the time. (laughs) That's well, that's, that's very interesting since, you know, we sort of feel like there are these fundamental limitations that we run up against in technology and, usually at some point you run out of technical limitations and you just have human limitations left. And we like to think we can make technological solutions to some of those, but it often turns out to be very hard to do. Right, right. So Etsy, like in the first couple of years, had like an external, like this big externality that was a forcing function that uh, was, you know, many tens of thousands of requests per second. There are only so many ways to solve that problem in a way that works. And so like that kind of uh, external pressure can be a determining factor on like how you go about building stuff. A morass of 7,000 microservices probably would not have worked for us at the time. Right. But in other contexts, a morass of 7,000 microservices could make sense depending on the human factors on the ground. But I think that it's you know, a common mistake is to like confuse the two things and say like, oh, you know, this company has a morass of 7,000 microservices. Like that must be because it's a technically good solution to a thing. Right. And I would say, no, it's a solution to like their holistic problem set, which is in large part, uh, all of these other things that involve like bringing people into the organization, like the ways people have evolved within the organization to work with each other and things like that. 
Sure, sure. And I think like there's there's a great deal of confusion about all manner of things. That and those the forcing functions that force you to have one solution or another are relatively rare, and you probably don't have too many of them all at once. Right, right. So that's interesting. You mentioned like at Etsy, you had the one forcing function, which was the scale of the website that you were operating, right. the amount of traffic you had to deal with. Were there particular factors about the human structure of the organization, what people were working on and, and what they were trying to do that, that influenced that? That influenced the architecture. So when yeah. I got there, very much so, yes. The way the architecture had evolved by the time I got there was the founder, the founding engineer, mm -hmm. learned PHP as he wrote the site, and that produces what you might as expect. As we all did. Produce. <laughs> right, yeah. So as, as one does, like you have an idea that you want to make real, and you figure out a tool well enough in order to make that thing. Right. They hired... Uh, some consultants uh, who were Python twisted experts, which is like, mm -hmm. I don't know. I don't know if people know what that is now. It's like a uh, reactor driven programming thing for Python. It was Python. A, an asynchronous web framework for Python, right? Yeah. So Python 3 has like async, async IO stuff baked into it now. It did not at the time. Okay. Uh, and so this is like a library uh, implementing deferreds and reactor loop and stuff like that. So they they asked some consultants who are experts in that what to do, and they, not coincidentally, said, "Well, maybe you need a Python twisted middle there." Right, <laughs> so, of course. So they did that, and they created enough of a problem that they hired a bunch of other Python programmers to join, which is kind of the wave in which I joined. And they, you know, were very interested in adding Python things, right. and, and they were doing it. I had read my Joel on software at this point, and one of his essays was, please don't ever try to rewrite the entire thing. It's not going right. to work. And I told them, I've read this thing that says maybe we should never <laughs> rewrite the entire thing at once. Mm -hmm. But I, I didn't have the, you know, the thought leader gravitas at the time in order to convince anyone of this. And so they got pretty deep on they got pretty deep in the pursuit of the idea that designers would work on a thing and finish it and hand it to the front end engineers who had like come up with a spec for the middle tier engineers to do a thing. Yes. Who would come up with a spec for the DBAs to write some stored procedures. And then the DBAs would write the stored procedures. The middle layer engineers would like write some stuff. And then the front end engineers would finally be able to get some work done on this. And then right. it would just release to the world and like it would be good. And everything um, would magically work on the first try. Right. So needless to say, this did not pan out as expected. The, you know, as I alluded to before, the the human carnage as a result of this not panning out <laughs> repeatedly was uh, was more was more uh, than you might expect in in 2017 the term sheets that are written tend to be more founder friendly than they were in 2005 oh, okay so the results of all of that were the founders all leaving right and the engineering team all turning over except for me wow and okay. one of one or two other people so, <laughs> so you were you were left to uh, pick up the pieces after the apocalypse. Rough, uh, yes, roughly speaking, that, nice. that's more or less how it went. It was a lot. It was. Uh, uh, I mean, we we rehired people relatively sure at a relatively brisk pace, and that um, you know it was really only only you know I came into work one day and there were two really good ops people sitting there in the chairs of the ops people who'd been there the day before. Okay. <laughs> and they said, hey, uh, we've noticed there's no monitoring. We're going to turn on, we're going to write some monitoring now. That <laughs> sounds like, good, great. yeah. Yeah, great. <laughs> it would be good to know how many hours per week the site is down as opposed right. to just... <laughs> uh, and so it was, just, it, was um, it was a frantic and bizarre period of digging out of that, but it ultimately worked. Yeah, that sounds like quite a challenge. Uh, clearly you survived. And you, uh, I guess, got some good conference talks out of it, maybe? Yeah, I think I'm, I'm still unpacking the whole thing, and I probably will be for a while yet. Etsy's in the news now for, you know, not amazing reasons, because yeah. it's public and activists, investors are, uh, have started to notice that they're on the scent. Uh, and so all of that stuff, it's, and I'm still obviously like in contact with a lot of mm -hmm. people who work there. And so it's just, it's never... It's never receded into back of mind for me, really. Yeah, uh, it's yeah. definitely a formative experience. And it's, I mean, what they're doing is is the biggest, one of the biggest challenges you can have, I think, as a startup. They're, they were building a new kind of market 
for homemade goods. Yeah, that's 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 tough. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of semi subtle reasons that that is more complicated than you'd expect. Oh, I, I believe it entirely. Yeah. So uh, one thing I noticed just looking over your blog and your website is you've taken some of these uh, conference talks that you've done and turned them into little mini websites of their own, uh, all ending with the dot club domain <laughs> um, name. Yeah. So you have. I... Yeah, so the way that precipitated was I had bought I had bought featureflags.club at some point okay. and I the reason I had done that was I realized that I had been anytime I had a conversation with somebody about feature flags it went like okay, it, incidentally Peter Seibel wrote this at Etsy. That's okay. the, so a uh, callback to the earlier part of the discussion here. <laughs> he wrote uh, feature flags implementation at Etsy? Yes, and the 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 is you know, as a writer and as a programmer, he uh, was ideally suited to do this because what he did was write uh, an excellent README for the Feature Flags library, explaining yes. all the different ways we use this. And so every time Feature Flags have ever come up in conversation for me, I say, okay, so there's this guy Peter Seibel who wrote this awesome book, which had a which warped me as as a child, <laughs> and and, uh, and he also wrote this README for this readme for a feature flags library. And then I would refer people to that readme at some point, like Etsy decided their internal fork of this had diverged too far from the thing that was on the website. And they put a thing up at the top that said, well, uh, this is no longer, this is an archive project, sorry, or something right. at the very top, top of the readme, thus ruining the entire readme because <laughs> people would read it. People would immediately read go away. Dismiss like the rest of it. And so yeah. I, I spun up this site featureflags.club that was just like, Number of days since someone's been referred to uh, github.com slash Etsy slash feature and told to just ignore the part where it says it's archived. And like, it's, <laughs> okay. I'd set that to zero every time that I did that. Uh, and then just like a spark of inspiration hit me and I decided I should make this my marketing brand for <laughs> for talks. Yeah, it's, and, it's a good idea. I, right. So I, I also put up datadriven.club, which was my primary data-driven products uh, talk from Etsy years and pushtrain.club. I had for a long time been trying to get keynote presentations on the web in a way that was readable because if you just do the export, they're not, the, the artifacts it produces are just like a series of slides. Right, and you have yeah. to just, just infer what the what the narrative of it is. Matija Kuglowski, pinboard guy who I, whose tweets I enjoy yes, a lot. He's he's hilarious. Yes, is, is well, has has a, a very lo-fi format for, for doing this, which is just he puts the slides there, puts the narrative next to them. I stole this and made a Python script that'll turn a keynote into that. Cool. Uh, that, is my, that is my contribution to the, pro to the project of having uh, artifacts of talks on the internet that you can actually look at and right. get information out of. Yeah, that's good. Maybe this is a is is this a just a habit of programmers who habitually do conference talks is that you end up writing your own tool to either create or export the content of the talk because I did this too um, in a different in a different context. Yeah, maybe so. Like I, I guess it was more I was trying really hard to just keep using Keynote because like the last thing I need is to learn a different thing to do the presentation. Right or like create a way to have other technical difficulties when, when, yes. when, when doing a presentation, but keynote is very oriented in the direction of doing the presentation. Right. It is not, it is not oriented in, in terms of having a record of that presentation that you can show to people on the internet. Right. Uh, right. You know, video is the way people work around this, but yeah. I, my experience is that I, I have a hard time sitting through, videos of talks just because it takes a lot longer than reading the same material would. Yeah, I've noticed that as well. Like I, I enjoy conference talks. I like going to conferences, but it is hard to sit through a 40, 50 minute conference talk on, you know, a video screen on the computer. Yeah, I was, I, I, uh, is watching my friend Kyle Kingsbury's uh, Scala Days talk. I watched it yesterday and I, I like love his, I love all of his output. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Everything he does. I, and I, and his talks are a hundred times better than the average talk. Yeah. I still like was sitting there on the couch and I had to rewind the YouTube stream of it like five times. Because right. I just, 
Yeah, it's something about the distance or the the not real timeness of it. It's it's hard to concentrate. Yep. So yeah, so I think you've uh, hit on a, a a great solution here because often people just post slides, which is never enough to get the actual content. But you've almost turned these into articles that are have the same content as the original uh, presentation. Yeah, I mean, like, Machi Kaglowski should receive all of the credit for having done that. Not me. Not, Noted. Not, not me. I okay, well. I wrote 100 lines of Python, and I figured out some Apple script, which I, well, I will, I will grant you figuring out the Apple script, like, took me a week. Yeah, that, that sounds like a, <laughs> the, a rather daunting challenge that I wouldn't take on. Well, cool. So we mentioned push train and you mentioned uh, feature flags. Tell us about data driven dot club, because this also seemed to be a, a big oh, okay. focus for your, yeah. for your work. As I like mentioned, like I'd been at Etsy for a couple of years and like we hadn't done a lot of product work. And then probably around 2009, 2010, 2011, we started to be able to do uh, some more product work again. And we built a bunch of things and put them out there. And simultaneously, all the graphs went up and to the right as they've been doing. And mm-hmm. like, we just kind of figured, well, okay, everything's going well and we're geniuses. <laughs> everybody, likes, everybody likes the stuff that we're doing. And then, you know, a, another year or two pass and, you know, periodically what would happen would be support person would come over and would be upset about a bug on the site or something. And they'd be like, this, this feature, like we get so many calls about this thing. Does this even work? Does anybody ever successfully use this? And like... You know, I'd like investigate this, and the answer would usually be no. Right. <laughs> no, okay, nobody's, yeah. nobody's ever used that thing that we built a few years ago that we were really proud of at the time. Maybe we should just turn it off. Uh, that seems like the most reasonable thing here, rather than stopping what we're doing now to go fix this and figure out why people aren't using it. Maybe we yeah. should just turn it off. So we went through this long phase of like turning off every single thing I'd ever worked on. <laughs> <I'd say. laughs> That wasn't that wasn't infrastructure. Yeah. And I would like I reflected upon this and I was like, huh, but the business seemed to be doing so well. What's happening, I think. Mm-hmm. And then I came to the realization and I mean, many other people did that. Oh, OK. The the genius thing that Etsy is, is it's a marketplace and the where the sellers are also the buyers, which is interesting because the classic problem of starting a marketplace is that you need to bootstrap both buyers and sellers at the same mm-hmm. time. Etsy yeah. didn't Etsy didn't exactly have that same problem. They had sellers who also wanted to buy crafts and buy supplies for crafts. Right. And in addition to that, these are people running businesses who all were extremely highly motivated to go promote their presence on Etsy. Uh, and they did. And so Etsy, like at its core, was a listing page, a search page, a checkout funnel, and a way to sign up. And mm-hmm. then as long as you didn't break those things, it was this external growth engine. And we were we had been riding the wave of that external growth engine oh. and then built like building a bunch of pro- like keeping it working was a lot of yeah. work. And, you know, I would not discount any of that. But I think like it's notable that, you know, none of none of the other products that we built after that were like moved the needle, really. Like we, mm-hmm. we put we spun up a bunch of things on the side of this. But at the end of the day, it was like dwarfed completely by Etsy sellers out there promoting themselves. Yeah. Uh, and so having internalized this, I was thinking, well, I have two choices, like one, nihilism, <laughs> or two, <laughs> or two, I could try to sort out some way to have an impact. And I think like most of the narrative of the talk is trying to sort out how to have an impact in such a situation. One piece of the puzzle was A-B testing. So like the least you could do is if you release a feature, try and like establish a baseline and figure out whether or not what you've done has moved relative to the baseline or not. Because yeah. if you just if you just release things and then eyeball the graphs, all the graphs go up and to the right and you feel good, but you've right. not necessarily done anything good. You may have you may have actually made it much worse and you just don't realize it. Mm-hmm. That's that's a distinct possibility and one that we observed many times after A/B testing things. Okay. Um, and so I think like the first thing we started doing was we started A/B testing things. We realized oh often the stuff we realized slash confirmed the anecdotal experience of having turned everything off. We confirmed <laughs> oh okay well it, it turns out that <laughs> often like when we release a thing there's just crickets and nobody's noticed and 
that sucks. That's unfortunate. Occasionally, like we make things slightly worse and rarely we make things like marginally better, but we we're not like having these multiple integer percent conversion gains that we just imagine that we're having by doing this stuff. Right. You're making small incremental improvements. Now. And so the frustrating part about having the frustrating part about doing the AB testing is like the only approach to keeping yourself honest is that it comes at the end of building a thing. Right. So if you spend six months on a thing and then do an AB test, first of all, human nature is going to compel you to not to, to make the AB test work because well, of course, yeah, right. Or look at, or squint at the numbers until you are convinced yourself that, uh, you've done something good because that's just, that is the nature of the East African plains ape. Like you're gonna, (laughs) you're, (laughs) there's no way, there's no way you're going to let yourself fail once you've invested that much. Right. Sure. We have a name for the sunk cost fallacy because it's a thing that people do all the time. Right. We did, we did that for, you know, a year or so and there was much, wailing and gnashing of teeth as we AB tested like giant efforts and AB tested giant efforts and found that they were not as good as we had hoped they would be. And what I've looked at this thought of like walked away from my computer for a while and thought about it and said, mm-hmm. well, we ha- we've in the process of building out this capability for doing AB testing. We've also built up a stack that allows us to do ad hoc analytics. Maybe we could do some of that before we build stuff. Uh, so it dawned on me that, oh, okay, like a couple of days or even a week, like in the lab at the drawing board is probably worth, is probably (laughs) worth more than the same amount of time coding furiously on a thing. So let's think about having, trying to apply that to trying to apply that to building products. And so what an MBA later told me is, is that what I, what I had independently discovered was, uh, something called opportunity sizing. Ah, which was okay. just like, okay, we have some idea. What is like, let's try and use some math to like think about what that could mean, like in a semi rigorous way. Okay. Uh, Etsy had Etsy had more than enough data on hand to be able to evaluate most of its ideas like that. You know, more more to a greater or lesser degree, depending on what the idea is. But like, I think the the insight that I came upon at the time slash what the talk is about is that. Okay, so we anticipate that our our products are going to have an effect in reality. The language that we use to describe reality is mathematics. Okay, <laughs> so right. to the extent that this is actually going to have an effect in reality, we can use mathematics to describe that effect. Uh, and okay. you know, we'll have, we'll have large margins of error if it's if depending on what it is. But like you can still like draw a box of reality around like a product just by multiplying numbers together. Okay. And that is essentially like what it is. Like okay, if you're changing a page, like you start with how much traffic do we have on this page? Let's say we increase that by ten percent. Like how much is that? And then the thing you could do at Etsy was multiply this through to like okay, how much money does that mean at the end of the day? Yeah. Is that a lot or not? (laughs) So it was very very like basic stuff, but it I took a very like complicated way to get there. I think like, you know, as a young programmer, it was like the kind of thing that I assumed that people were doing when they came up with ideas for products. Like not, this wasn't like, this wasn't a narrative in my head. Like, oh, okay, this person is handing me this thing to do. It's just like, oh, okay, this must make sense because it's being handed to me. But like the, but I realized being there is like, oh, I, as an engineer, I have all of these quantitative inputs that we could use to evaluate the idea that nobody else has access to because like, in order to get it, you have to write like a, a Scala thing using monoids. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you have to you have to know some group theory to get this data. So unfortunately, like it's it's on me at this point. Yeah, uh, yeah. So we can work on making this better, but like at the at the moment, it's on me to like say whether or not this stuff makes sense. And so tried really hard to uh, build stuff like that while I was at Etsy. Um, wrote that talk. A thing that I had realized about thought leadership was that a really good way to lead thoughts uh, if you work at a company is to go externally and 
say that that's the way you do it. <laughs> oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> and then uh, if people outside react positively to that, it bolsters your case on the inside. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so that's that's very much like the way you should square, like, what that talk says and, like, what's going on with Etsy now. Um, I think, like, it was the the popularity of that is, like, a point of view, even, like, even, like, uh, backing up to the point where I said, okay, the the activities of employees uh, are not necessarily in great alignment with the, like the performance of the company and the the company is growing based Mm -hmm. on externalities. Like all of those things are things that you should take as like things that were controversial inside. (laughs) Sure. uh, Sure. Yeah. The popularity of that as a point of view waxed and waned over time. I think it, uh, it may have struck the bottom of the pool relatively recently. (laughs) Uh, but that's, that's essentially my, uh, that's, that's my explanation of that talk and how it's, how it aligns with current events. Cool. It's a really interesting idea because I've seen that happen in, uh, lots of places as a consultant where business requirements for new features come in and they're just taken as givens there isn't or there often isn't a lot of discussion between business stakeholders and technical stakeholders to actually estimate what from what it sounds like you're describing you can estimate not necessarily if something is going to be successful or not but you can estimate what would the impact impact be if it were successful or not. Right, right. Yeah. So, and it's like, it's horseshoes and hand grenades here. It's like, are we talking about uh, 100, 10,000 or a million? It's yeah. like, it's like, it's that, it's on that level of specificity. It's not, it's not more than that. And I think like, if you actually go through the motions of doing work such as that, what you find is like, a lot of things don't pass that kind of sanity sure, test. Sure, sure. Because a lot of things sound like really good ideas when you hear them. Like, things that sound like good ideas are a dime a dozen, like things that can actually, you know, stand up to having a couple of numbers multiplied together are less, less common. And I mean, like, I, I think it seems to me that, yeah, this, this must be a relatively universal experience because like every, every company that's in business is a survivorship bias story to some degree. Sure. Um, Maybe not the degree to which Etsy was maybe, maybe more, maybe less. I don't know. But like, Mm -hmm. You're not thinking of like for every you're working at a company and it's in business and it has like a bunch of employees, which is to some degree like you're it's alighting the story of 10,000 companies that died. Right. (laughs) Right. And so like you you to some degree like there are definitely companies that are more intentionally grown than I have experienced. Mm hmm. Uh, and less like the results of brownie in motion than I have experienced. <laughs> but, uh, but, but I think most uh, companies are probably uh, they have, more there's random. Some, like, yeah, there's some degree to which this is still accurate, I think. Yeah, it's just human nature. Right. Well, uh, thank you very much, I mean, for, for going through those. Uh, we'll definitely link to those website talks uh, in the show notes. I do want to move on here because we want cool. to ask you, of course, about Skyliner. So to start, I guess, uh, what is, was Skyliner? Skyliner was essentially all of my opinions about continuous deployment. Mine melded with all of Coda Hale's opinions about uh, how you deploy stuff on AWS. Uh, mine were obviously mostly forged at Etsy, and his were mostly forged in trying to improve infrastructure at Stripe. Um, and so... I think uh, it, it was a system quick overview of like how the business went was I think like our, we realized that the risks to businesses are not shipping fast enough, uh, not finding the exact market that you uh, conceive that you're trying to build a product for and so on. And like we, our, our settings on those priors are pretty high, but I still think like we failed by not, <laughs> by not shipping fast enough mm. and by finding a market that was different than the one that we conceived of and you know just like spinning wheels on things and running out of runway and stuff like that i think i'm going to be asked to give advice later (laughs) Uh, i would give you some for free now which is like if you're starting a business if you have such priors triple it (laughs) right those are real so anyway like we we set out to build 
basically the thing that we would want if we were building a startup on AWS. Cool. I have critiques about existing platforms as a service, you know, not that like they're just serving different use cases than that exact one. Uh, we're both, we're both people with 15 years of experience and like operating on a team, a, a large-ish teams of people doing this stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, most, most platforms as a service that are not AWS or more, or like things that are as Byzantine as AWS or like oriented more towards people just starting out. And so yeah. like if people just starting out approach the tool that makes sense for a single person or maybe two people makes less sense for five people or 10 people or 50 people. And I right. think like that, that was kind of like, that's the, the front end thesis of Skyliner. The back end thesis of Skyliner is that all of the ways to, to build, to deploy code onto AWS are pretty bad. AWS has like, this ramshackle collection of different ways you can do it. None of them work super well. Skyliner's backend infrastructure orchestrated blue-green deploys for you that just created an entire new cluster next to your existing cluster and made sure it passed made sure it uh, passed health checks and then did a swap of the two. Cool. So Skyliner was those th- those two things put together. Uh, it was written in Clojure. The core deployment piece that I just described was a very uh, satisfying to me self-hosting thing where mm-hmm. it could deploy itself because it was implemented as a finite state machine. Cool. Yeah. No, it was incredibly satisfying to me and yeah. to Coda too, but and to, and to anyone I uh, explain it to, but it is not in any way like a reason that you would buy a product. Well, <laughs> but, <laughs> Unless yeah, you were the kind of engineer that we are here, right? Well, we didn't. We didn't. Uh, we just certainly didn't fail because of that, and we certainly didn't fail because of closure. And I also wouldn't categorize this as having. You know, it's not a maximal level of of fail per se, because it's definitely better for we've we're we're going to Mailchimp. It's better than the median startup outcome, and I'm really yeah. excited about really excited about going to Mailchimp. A lot of good people there, and it's a really awesome company, which has never taken VC, which appeals to me. Oh, nice. Yeah, I didn't know that. Interesting. Yeah. So was Skyliner your first big closure project? Uh, yeah, it was. So in uh, in the long, long ago at Etsy, someone wrote a thing in closure kind of off the reservation and mm-hmm. uh, sp- spun it up on AWS and it got tech crunched. Uh, and then I was tasked with porting that thing from closure to to PHP, which was a long, sad process. Interesting. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but other than that, it was really my first foray into writing closure as opposed to just reading it and trying to transmute it into something else. Right. Uh, and you wrote a blog post about that specifically, I think, uh, 14 months with closure. Yep. Uh, so what, what was the experience uh, like for you? Uh, obviously, you'd seen practical common Lisp, so uh, Lisp wasn't entirely as much of a shock as it is to some people. Right. Yeah. But, and I've, I've been an Emacs user for a long, t- a long, long time. And so I've the other gateway a, drug to uh, right, a, Lisp a, is... fair, a small, a, a small mountain of, of Elisp and stuff like that. And so I like, I wasn't, I wasn't worried about syntax or anything like that. Um, I think I definitely spent a couple of months writing what I would call now pretty bad closure. Cause mm-hmm. I just like, I'm not about to, I could just, get things done within a day. So I wasn't about to not get things done so that I could learn a proper way to do things. Sure. Uh, and everyone starts uh, out at that. Yeah. Point. And I think like the reason that I mean, there are all sorts of like mind bending reasons that practical common lists like affected me as much as it did uh, when I was younger. And like, it turned out that like none of those things manifested themselves in using closure for interesting building a thing really. Um, I mean, I was aware that multi-methods existed, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, so, and so I like, like that was a tool that we wound up using a lot. But mm-hmm. you know, we we wrote a handful, like five to ten, maybe I forget. Like I actually counted them and put them in the put that in the blog post, like the actual number. But we wrote maybe on the order of five to ten macros total. They were mm-hmm. mostly logging. There was no like you know we barely we barely scratched the surface on the types, records, uh, protocols, things like that. It's interesting you mentioned that because I've had a similar experience writing a lot of closures that macros tend to be 
fairly rare in closure application code, even though a lot of the language itself is defined as macros. Um, And it is often for things like logging and introspection and debugging type uh, utilities, which is, I think, really interesting because although Clojure's macro system is very similar to that of Common Lisp, they're nearly identical except for a few cosmetic differences, but the style of idiomatic programming that has evolved in Clojure tends to be less macro heavy than common list code often is, at least in my experience. Yeah, I'm not so sure I, why. Well, I, I guess I'm not sure. Like the way I'm thinking about it, I guess, is that like if I had gotten a common list job when I was 25, right. <laughs> uh, I probably would have produced a lot of like really complicated macro code. Mm-hmm. My at the job where I worked at the time, like I probably wrote a lot of abstract classes and things. And like, I think my, uh, Part of the experience of becoming an experienced programmer, like part of what that is, is like like realizing that good good code is not it's not a single measure of whether it's like been whittled down to it's like whatever like tail recursive platonic ideal right right, right. it's like it's, it's not what good code is it's is is good code uh good code is code that you can debug in production or that you can change easily and things like that and like. Yeah. Those kinds of concerns like lead you to write code in a different way than uh, than you get after if you just hit the ground if you read Practical Common List and hit the ground running and try to use every possible feature of the language. Yeah, so I think like most of my 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 perspective as a working programmer is definitely a lot more oriented towards like what operates and then work backwards. Right. Uh, so like, what if I'm debugging this code? If I'm debugging this code six months from now, what am I going to wish that I had done with it uh, and mm-hmm. things like that? Or what is the what is the relative risk of deploying this change set versus a different way of uh, formulating the same thing and then yeah. things like that? It sounds like that sort of in a way ties into another uh, blog post you had uh, titled Choose Boring Products. Choose boring technology, which okay. I anticipate will be carved on my headstone. Oh no! Sorry to bring it up again. <laughs> no, no, it's it's fine. And like I think it, that often is uh, people often ask the two of the ask about the two of those things in in tandem. Like, mm-hmm. okay, so you wrote this like boring technology diatribe, and then you wrote about how you've used closure for a startup. Like, what right. gives? So <laughs> it's like is closure boring? I was like, well, I um, I guess like I view having put such a good title on that essay as like one of like a, a world historical self own on my, on my part. <laughs> it's funny how those things can, can come back to haunt you. Um, because like, I think people really focus on that. It's like, Oh, okay. The stuff that you don't have fun with, uh, got it. Or like whatever yeah, PHP, yeah. PHP is actually good. And it's like, I, I believe those things. And like, outside, if I weren't doing a two person startup and the other programmer was Coda Hale, like yeah. I would probably use PHP instead of Clojure because you, if if you took me at 25 and threw me into Clojure, I could create a bigger disaster with Clojure. Ah, yeah. Good with than I could with PHP. PHP is good technology because it is like bumper bowling. It doesn't let <laughs> you, it doesn't give you threads. You can't like do stuff with it, and that's like yeah. fine. On the other hand, I, I think Clojure in some ways does. I mean, yes, you can make probably a bigger mess with closure just because it is very expressive and you can do a lot in a small space but other aspects uh like the immutable data and the functional core library are probably also helpful in uh preventing future mistakes yeah i guess like i think the reason php is so successful is that it it chooses the right set of things to not let you do for the web Mm -hmm. uh and so like you know a lot of startups like a lot of large tech companies at least like in a lot over the last 15 years have like been php much to the chagrin of all the people who get hired to work on them later right uh, because because like it you you can uh you can avoid having your thing killed in the crib because php does not let you have shared state on the web right, server right. It doesn't let it doesn't like sessions don't really work uh the um 
you can't like you can't write a thing that runs out of memory. It doesn't matter if the interpreter itself runs out of memory. Mm -hmm. uh, if it crashes, nothing else is affected, and um, you know you don't you can't you you can't do anything related to threads or anything like that. And like you know all of those things are very limiting, and like there are, there are ways that it goes sideways later where you know we very we very simply like implemented asynchronous stuff just using the thread pool and mm -hmm. SQS. If you were doing PHP, you'd have to spin up additional infrastructure to do that. Um, yeah. That's like, you know, that's the way it goes sideways eventually. But like the businesses survive because yeah. the person learning PHP <laughs> doesn't like make it like they make a mess, but like it's a mess that's tractable for yeah. other people to dive into. That's a really interesting point. Like it's PHP is less of a general purpose programming environment. It is very oriented around building websites. And so yep. if that's what you're doing, it will help you along and prevent you from doing something that's not appropriate for building a website. Yep. Yeah. No, it, it it's, and I mean, I will say that like PHP is at version seven. I last used it at version five. And mm -hmm. I think most, most people's experience of it is roughly version three so it's yeah, like yeah it's more like a weird java these days mm. but still it is definitely very much oriented towards the domain of building websites like you can build server processes with it we did at etsy it like is it is not fun really but but yeah. like using using all of your web code like in a server process mm -hmm, is, mm -hmm. is better than not doing that it is it is bad it is incapable in all of the correct ways because there are things you want to avoid if you're building a high traffic website and right, PHP, right. right? PHP basically presents you with the form factor that will like not allow you to fail in highly predictable ways. Yeah. So just so our so, listeners are, are aware of this, they heard it here first. PHP is better than closure. Within deadly the, silence. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so I think like that that kind of thing is like what people like remember about the the boring technology essay. Yeah. The part that I think that I care the most about is uh, the second half of the diatribe, which is that like you can choose some things to like you can choose some interesting things to do, but you can't do all of the interesting things at once. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think like that is that's that's really like the part that I wish people took to heart. It's like. We did. We used closure for the website, but like I tried as hard as possible to not do anything weird and innovative in the front end for it because I just yeah. like didn't have the mental bandwidth. And I think like the first answer to why did you pick closure, boring technology guy, is like I didn't. Coda sat next to Kyle Kingsbury at Stripe for uh, for six months. Yeah, went home, had some dreams about wolves, and <laughs> uh, and then woke up one day and realized that he knew closure, and then like he chose it. And like, that's, you know, whatever, it's fine. Like the, like, that's the first answer. But the second answer is that like, it, we've calculated that a language such as this, that's not Java would be uh, productive for two people with 15 years of programming experience. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, who are amenable to Lisp anyway. And I think like that was true. It may not have been true, but we also weren't simultaneously doing every weird thing we could think of. Right. We we're only doing really one weird thing. Uh, I mean, and then trying to make the business work around it. Yeah. And a lot of people get, it's easy to get sucked into that trap of like, we're trying to be innovative. So we have to choose the newest, most innovative version of everything. Um, right. But the um, other way, this way, other, the other ditch that you drive into is that you have a giant PHP ball of spaghetti and everybody gets sick of it at once. And they, uh, everybody gets sick of dealing with each other at once. And then the, the company decides, okay, so we're going to rewrite this into services and yes. we can just, just write the services in anything. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, and, and then the, you know, the guy who likes Java never has to talk to the, the person that likes, you know, Haskell or whatever yeah. those, that can, they can just like write code in their, uh, behind their moats and castle walls. And, yeah. and you're back to, to Conway's law again. Right. Yeah. So I think like that, that kind of situation is, is more uh, what that was about because like what, what those two people will discover is that they are duplicating their operational effort. Sure. And that, that's extremely bad. Yeah. Well, cool. So, um, 
Skyliner was built in Clojure, and you talked about kind of learning uh, things about Clojure uh, as you went. How did that decision play out for Skyliner? It sounds like it, uh, you say it wasn't a source of problems in general. No, definitely not a source of problems. Like I would say library support was a lot better than I conceived that it could be. Uh, It's fine. Like that's like with uh, obscure to semi-obscure, I don't know where closure really lands on the the obscurity spectrum. Yeah, <laughs> but it's knows? like it's not it's not PHP or Java. Sure, certainly. sure. Um, like the where those things are like fall down is that you wind up having to write like libraries to do basic things. We mostly did not find ourselves doing that. Mm-hmm. I had to. We used. Um, we used Google soy templates and the single worst thing I did in closure was try to figure out, uh, Google juice. Oh, yes. (laughs) So so like, I think like the, uh, you know, the things that like, like the horrible experiences of programming were largely Mm -hmm. not, none of them were really closure related. They were, uh, they were mostly Java library related. Yeah. Um, and there's just no, there's no avoiding that. Yeah. So yeah, I, I don't think like, we certainly, we certainly did not fail because closure, because closure was not good enough. Like, and we certainly didn't fail because it was too distracting either. It was fine. And you know, I would, I would preface that by saying, like, if you were, if you were hiring ten people out of Stanford a week, you probably shouldn't use closure. It sounds, sounds like a bad idea to me. But um, yeah, certainly if you uh, <laughs> don't have any experience with that already, yeah. yeah so as usual, it comes down to. Uh, actually analyzing your own situation and making decisions on the basis of that. So you announced fairly recently, I think, just a couple of weeks ago, that Skyliner would be shutting down. Yep. What uh, led up to that? What do you think brought you to uh, this point? So I would say the the business was successful enough that if I were 22, you would probably be talking to me. I would be in in a box truck, like, living living like in the Google parking lot or something <laughs> and I would still be working on this. So it was like successful enough to support. We've, we did find a market, but like we, we also are later in uh, later in our lives and just not able to sustain ourselves on boiled, uh, newspa- yeah. boiled newspaper and, you know, I don't know, kerosene or whatever, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. So uh, funding for it was, was going to be necessary. It looked, you know, six months ago, it seemed like getting like we had, adoption and stuff that was going to be sufficient to get funding. But then Amazon, uh, as we were putting that together, Amazon CodeStar came out, uh, which yes. was essentially a copy of what we had done within Amazon. Mm-hmm. Uh, I could go on a long extended diatribe about all the reasons that it's worse. But like, I think the, uh, at the end of the day, like the signal was Amazon, the, as, the more successful you get, Amazon's not going to buy this business. Yeah. Amazon's going to like throw a hundred people at it and just like copy it enough to kill you. Yeah. Which, you know, did not require a hundred people clearly <laughs> <laughs> at the stage we were at. Um, and so we, we started looking at, uh, as, as soon as that happened, like our, the funding round we were trying to put together very rapidly evaporated. Uh, and we, we, we went to look at, uh, uh, acquisition okay. and that's what, that's where it wound up. We talked to MailChimp and they were, friend of mine from Etsy days uh, works at MailChimp now and told me all about it. And it kind of seemed like, I mean, this, this is probably not fair to MailChimp, but like <laughs> it, it seemed, it seemed to like my years is like, Oh, parallel dimension Etsy that never took, that never took uh, outside funding or became beholden to it. Uh, uh, okay. And so Interesting. Like, I think, you know, part of my, part of my Etsy experience is like, I know more about how equity works Mm-hmm. than than I ever wanted to know. <laughs> so <laughs> and so like I'm I'm you know less able to be recruited with ISO options than most people. Yeah. Uh, and so I think Mailchimp was really attractive for that reason. I think it was a uh it's a you know a great great business doing great work. It certainly reaches me uh marketing wise and everything I interact with, like all of the yeah, podcasts yeah. I listen to. Uh-huh, <laughs> so, uh-huh. It's very like top of like their subliminal messaging is working on me. Uh, <laughs> yes. uh, and you know, I think the founders seem like really good people and all of the people I talk to there seem like really good people. And that kind of thing is important to me. So, 
cool. Very happy about it and uh, happy to be going there with a bunch of people that I uh, enjoy working with. Cool. Will you be doing closure there or do you know yet? No, no. There, uh, I assume there will be no closure there. I think it's largely PHP again. Okay. But uh, <laughs> there's other stuff going on, and I'm I'm not sure exactly what I'm going to wind up doing. Sure, so sure. I'm sure it'll involve PHP somehow. But, uh, <laughs> we'll we'll never get away from PHP. None none of us will. No, no. It'll be our 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 uh, descendants will be dealing with. Yep. With uh, triple equals and that that weird, <laughs> that weird like uh, PHP truth table. Yep. Yep. Decades and decades from now. PHP, JavaScript, and Bash. That'll be that'll be what's left of our civilization. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. Well, uh, great. I think we're coming uh, close to the end of our time here. Uh, is there anything else that you wanted to talk about or uh, mention? No, I feel like I've I've hit most of my my main my main current diatribes. So <laughs> excellent. <laughs> well, if you have any more, uh, let us know, and we'll be happy to have you on again. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, and we'll link to all those uh, talks and uh, sites in the show notes. So, as you know, we have uh, one final question that we will ask people. You've kind of already answered it, but that is, what advice would you give to our listeners? Yeah. So I guess like the way, like when, when you do interviews and like I've done a lot relatively recently, like people ask you like, what do you want to do? And I always like, I always say like, I have no way to answer this question. And the reason is because like I've had to, I had this trial by fire at some point in mid career where I uh, came to the realization that most of the code I'd written had been deleted. And (laughs) I, I, my reaction to this was to try and become was to try and make myself into a more user slash a more user slash business oriented developer than most people I've worked with. And like, I, okay. again, like I don't have like, I don't have, I wasn't like born this way. I didn't have like special insight. I'm not claiming to be smarter than anybody. I, I merely had this weird experience where I worked at a business where, you know, the product was amazing. People mm-hmm. loved it, but the the code that we wrote wasn't really having an impact on it and i think like um it i learned the hard way that it's a really good idea to orient yourself around like rather than like i really want to come into work and like write closure or write haskell or whatever to feel Mm -hmm. fulfilled like the way you really feel fulfilled fulfilled in life is you write stuff that makes a difference for people sure and and you ideally like have other things in your life (laughs) so so like a a couple of good ways to do that is to not like not not chase the chase the programming language dragon uh i mean i know it's a weird thing to say on a closure podcast i guess but like the no not at all i think uh i'd agree with that yeah, well, I reach. I have to reach people where they live. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, like, I, I think, um, yeah, just I, I try to like orient myself towards like what is going to have an impact and work backwards. I try to orient myself towards like what is going to avoid destroying value <laughs> and then yeah. work backwards. Uh, and I think you know a lot of programmers, and it's it's completely natural because the act of programming is sitting down at the keyboard and like doing stuff is mm-hmm. to go the opposite way is like, I have to write a bunch of code and then like all this other stuff has to happen. But like yeah. I, right now I have to write a bunch of code. And like, I yeah. think like that's just what your, that's what your natural perspective is. And I would say like, I think my, you know, my advice is essentially to back up yep. and try and think about it the other way around. Yep. As uh, one of uh, Rich Hickey's talks was titled, I think step away from the keyboard. I have not seen that one. I'll have to seek that one out. I think it was rich. It was, it was This was several years ago, but uh, we'll see if we can find that for the show notes, too. Cool. Yeah. All right. Well, that will do it for this episode. Thank you, Dan, for taking the time to speak with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Super, uh, super fun. And thank you to everyone else for listening. This has been the Cognicast. have been listening to the Cognacast, 
The Cognicast is brought to you by Cognitech. We are a team of thoughtful, experienced technologists. Our passion is helping organizations from the smallest startups to the Fortune 50 deploy technology effectively and humanely. We are here to help build better futures. You can find us on the web at Cognitech.com and on Twitter at, at Cognitech. You can subscribe to the Cognicast, listen to past episodes, and view cover art, show notes, and episode transcripts at our home on the web, Cognitech.com slash Cognicast. You can contact the show by tweeting at at Cognicast or by emailing us at podcast at Cognitech.com. Our guest this week was Dan McKinley. You can find Dan on Twitter at at McFunley. That's at sign M-C-F-U-N-L-E-Y. Our host was Stuart Sierra, who's at at Stuart Sierra on Twitter. That's at sign S-T-U-A-R-T-S-I-E-R-R-A. The Cognicast is produced by Kim Foster. Audio production is by Russ Olson, Joe Smith, and Jared Binford. Cover art is by Michael Parento. I'm Russ Olson. Thanks for listening.